I didn't come up in the skiing and snowboard world, and I didn't necessarily have that mountain ops expertise. And I think oftentimes that can be something that can keep women reluctant to put their name in the hat in an industry like ours if they don't feel like they are experts at the sport or experts at elements of the business. And I think with the intention around Vail Resorts to see themselves as potentially running a mountain, it's been something I've valued incredibly. And I couldn't be more proud to to be in this role at Park City and to be a female leader in the ski industry. Welcome to Storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going big today as we spend time with the leader of the largest ski area in America. Real quick, before you even listen to this conversation, please hop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Not only is the podcast just a small part of the storm, but the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. There is an article on stormskiing.com that accompanies this and every podcast episode that provides massive context on our conversation, including maps, charts, historical tidbits, and analysis of what makes Park City special. In addition to the podcast, I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles in the Storm Skiing newsletter every single year and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Park City, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, they find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's ProfileSearch.com. Profile Search, of course, is one of the Storm's many excellent partners. Another is Aspenware. Imagine a future where 99% of your mountain products are booked online. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the ski industry. They create customized e-commerce platforms that ensure guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines. Utilizing the team's extensive industry experience, 
Aspenware strives to make the resort booking process seamless with a mobile-friendly, simplified sales process that anticipates the needs of the guests at every part of their journey. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem visible. Visit aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 150, Deidre Walsh, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Park City, Utah. There are so many ways you could think about Park City. It's a center of mining history. It is a cultural capital that hosts the likes of the Sundance Film Festival. It's also a cautionary tale in mountain town gentrification. But most of you are probably here because you think of Park City first as a ski town. And there are three crucial moments in the recent history of Park City that primarily shape how we view the ski area today. The first is 2002, when the Olympics came to Salt Lake City. Park City, along with neighbor Deer Valley and Snow Basin, acted as host mountains. A few weeks back, Snowbird General Manager Dave Fields joined me on the podcast and broke down the seismic impacts that those Olympic Games, while just a couple weeks long, a couple decades ago now, had on the long-term trajectory and global reputation of Utah skiing. The second big event that shaped how we see Park City today was Vail's dramatic takeover of the resort from Park City-based Powder Core in 2014. That deal, sudden and shocking still to think about today, permanently reordered the power structure in the U.S. ski industry and allowed Vail to combine the canyons, a separate resort next door that it already owned, with Park City via the Quicksilver Gondola, therefore creating the largest ski area in America. And the third event was just last year when four Park City residents successfully prevented Park City Mountain Resort from installing two brand new chairlifts, a new six-pack that would replace both the Eagle Triple and the already decommissioned Eaglet Triple, and an eight-pack on Silver Load that would have replaced the current six-pack. Vail Resorts, rather than let the lifts rust in its parking lot while it fought the decision, simply shipped the tens of millions of dollars worth of new machines to Whistler. And the sum of all that is the Park City we have today, a headliner destination resort owned by the world's largest ski company and skiable on the world's most popular ski pass, situated just 45 minutes by interstate and primary highways from a major international airport in a town with exhausted residents who don't want the big time attraction above them to kill the quality of life around them. Running it is a big job as my guest today knows very well. Let's go. My guest today is the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Park City, Utah. With more than 40 lifts serving 3,226 vertical feet across 7,300 acres, Park City is the largest ski resort in the United States. Park City is one of 37 Vail resorts in North America. The ski area averages 355 inches of snowfall per season, but shattered their all-time record with 636 inches during the 2022-23 ski season. Prior to taking the top job at Park City, she spent three and a half years as general manager of North Star California, 
She also began her career at Park City, where she rose to Senior Director of Mountain Dining from 2007 to 2019. Deidre Walsh is my guest. Deidre, so good to catch up. Welcome to the storm. How are you feeling today as we hit this run-up stretch to ski season? Oh, I'm feeling great. It's uh, wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I know you're super locked in. It's We're recording this on October 18th for anyone listening. I know you're super locked into that Thanksgiving-ish opening date, but I do want to go back and just reflect on the winter of 2022-2023 real quick. I mean, how much fun and how much work was 636 inches of snow, Deidre? It's just an amazing number. Wow. Yeah, it's great just to reflect on the incredible season we had last year especially in my first year in the COO role. What an incredible season overall. And I think fun is the right word to think Mm -hmm. about last season. Like you said, 636 inches of snow. Just incredibly proud of the entire team at the resort and all of their efforts to keep all the lifts spinning, opening day till closing day. We had some great aspirations before the start of the season, Stuart, to have all of our lifts open by Christmas, Mm. something that we hadn't done before. And we were able to do that thanks to incredible conditions. Is that going to be a goal ongoing? Is that a goal this year as well? Get all the lifts open by Christmas? Yeah, you know, we always consider if we can hit that goal. Obviously, last year's conditions were pretty outstanding for us to be able to do it. But we're always looking to see what's the most terrain that we can have open at that peak period at Christmas time. So you said last winter was fun. Did you get to get out and enjoy some turns? I'd imagine it was a little bit different leading the resort than maybe your previous tenure when you might be able to sneak out a little more. Yeah, I think in this role, when you are the vice president and CEO resort, you know, you get out as often as you can. That's always a goal that I have. And you have to step back, too. And there's a lot of things behind the scenes that you're focused on. But I got out plenty of days last season. I have a a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. So Mm. I can assure you, even in days when I was not working in (laughs) uniform, I was able to get out and enjoy myself. Uh, How cool do they think it is to have mom running the resort? Oh, they think it's great. I think at one point they just think I'm the queen of hot chocolate. Um, But uh, I, I certainly do a bit more of that these days. How do they like it compared to North Star? Oh, they they love it. So, you know, the the two resorts are pretty different. When I was at North Star, my kids moved there and they were four and seven. So they were really just kind of coming into their own as skiers. Um, And that is such a great mountain for families to really like grow and learn. And then to come back and be at Park City where, I mean, the playground is just enormous here. They love it. Do they have the run of the place or do they still need supervision? Is is it the kind of, it's a huge mountain. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and, and we are parents that have been reluctant to get our kids, you know, phones and, and watches and those devices. So certainly this past season, uh, we have we have pretty good rules in place for them. I, mm-hmm. My son, though, he does Park City ski and snowboard team. And so he's out every Saturday with coaches who just last season got to take him everywhere and mm-hmm. helped him gain all the right skills for skiing and the kind of snow conditions we had. So He was out there probably showing me some of the pockets of snow that I wasn't aware of. And then my daughter skis on Saturdays. And so she's got a a really good sense of the mountain. But but there's lots of rules in place. So they must have had a blast. Not only did Park City get a really strong early start. I mean, the snow just kept coming and coming. And you actually were able to keep the place open until May 1st. That was the latest closing for the resort in 30 years. Talk about making that call to stay open into May. 
how did you decide, Deidre, because I'd imagine that's a big call. How did you decide that that would be worth it? Yeah, incredible. When we look back on May 1st as a closing day, like you said, it was historical for us, the latest closing that we'd had in 30 years. And I think in any season, you're always looking at the conditions as you approach your anticipated closing day and determining if that's still the right call to make. We actually had already extended it by a week. And then we were looking at the conditions and we were like, I think, I think we could push this a little bit further. And then we looked at the calendar and we saw that we could have closed on the Sunday, but extending to May 1st, which was a Monday, was going to be something that was not only historic, but closing on a Monday would be really fun for our locals. And so looking at the conditions, looking at the excitement of the season, looking at our employees' excitement to be part of history led to that decision. And it was so much fun and absolutely worth it. So what was the atmosphere like there on May 1st at Park City? You know, the word that comes to mind is just, it was smiles ear to ear. Um, We started the day with really actually a focus on our employees and an appreciation for them. So we gathered every employee that we could that was working that day to take a photo on Home Run. We invited some of our community partners as well. We had a big banner saying all the way to May. We had snowcats and we started the day with that moment with all of our employees as an appreciation and celebration of the incredible season. And then that celebration continued all day. We had posters to give out to guests and our employees. We had t-shirts made, we had stickers. And then that day ended with a band right at the base of Mountain Village. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was just such a great atmosphere. And it was a sunny bluebird day. And people just said that the skiing and riding was still incredible. It was just an amazing winter in the Wasatch and solitude kept going till late May. Brighton kept going for a couple more weeks and Snowbird actually made 4th of July. Could you have kept going or was the place maxed out? You know, I think that May 1st was the right call to make. Mm -hmm. We have summer operations that as you kind of go further into the winter season, you have to think about for us the turnover to get our summer operations going and you have to move all the snow out of the mountain village to prepare for summer. So I think we chose the right date there to be able to be ready for our summer business. Did you see enough enthusiasm, enough visitors on that May 1st date to think about maybe extending Park City season, which traditionally is wrapped first half of April, to maybe consider that for future seasons? Or was this just a special year and that was the right way to commemorate it? I mean, I'd hesitate to say that I'll ever see a May 1st closing day sometime again soon, but I'll never say never on that. I think it was absolutely the right call to make this past season. And I think every season we always look at all those different factors, conditions, demand, employees, and make that analysis. And part of the business is being really agile and Mm -hmm. flexible. And so we look at that every season and we'll continue to do that as we evaluate our closing dates. You know, Vail typically in the past would set open and closing dates for its large resorts by now. And I noticed that they set target opening dates, but not target closing dates. Do you have a target closing date for Park City yet? Or are you just going to wait and see how the season goes? We typically target for the second week in April. And so that's what we'd be looking at again for the season conditions permitting. So as I mentioned in the intro, you started your career at Park City and it must be cool to come full circle and go back there and lead that resort. But was that your home originally? Did you grow up in that region? Did you grow up skiing? No, actually I didn't. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. So right Mm. in the heart of the Midwest. I'm from a really large family. I have uh, nine brothers and sisters. And so for me, skiing and snowboarding was not at all part of my 
uh, experience growing up. If we took a vacation, we got in our big green suburban and we drove to the panhandle of Florida and we had time on the beach. So I loved being in the outdoors, but but skiing and snowboarding wasn't part of my personal experience growing up. You never went over to Hidden Valley, now a Vail Resort? Okay, so there is one story here, Stuart, for <laughs> sure. So from a, the Midwest, as you know well, skiing and, and snowboarding were still a bit of a novelty as I was as I was growing up. And in sixth grade, every year at the grade school I went to, the big field trip was actually a trip to Hidden Valley. And so I can remember all of us, you know, loading up, driving out there, and the day was on the bunny slopes. So we got ski rentals, and everyone can go up and down on the, the bunny hill there. And again, I had never skied before. There were no lessons. They did have some friends that had decided to spend their babysitting money and buy a lift ticket and put the wicket, you know, on their jacket and right. go up to the top of the hill. And I thought, well, this sounds like a great idea. And so I joined them. And uh, Seward, I, I really didn't understand the uh, um, that you needed to make turns on skis. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine what that was like if mm-hmm. you skied down this hill, following my friends who did have some experience. I think they had, they had both skied in Colorado. And um, I think fumbled my way down the hill. Mm-hmm. It's probably a good way to describe it. Eventually, the Hidden Valley Ski Patrol actually met me at the bottom, my <laughs> little sixth grader, and said, you know, I think you might either hurt yourself or someone else. <laughs> so I quickly took my jacket and I handed it to another friend so that they could use my my ticket and okay. go back up. And uh, and that was it. I, I didn't quite look back at skiing for many years until I found my way out to Utah. And what took you to Utah? Um, I had a background in the travel industry. So I worked for a travel company in my early 20s and I Got to work with corporate groups that traveled actually globally around the world. And Park City was a destination for many corporate groups as it is today. And now my husband, but my then boyfriend was also working there. And he had done a trip out to Park City. In fact, stayed at Grand Summit at Canyons Village. And um, he fell in love with it and moved out to Park City and said, you want to go with me? And I said, sure, sounds like fun. So mm-hmm. moved out to Park City in uh, December of 2003. And so once you set up shop there, were you like, well, I might as well try the snow sliding thing again? <laughs> I did. He was, so he was a snowboarder. His mm-hmm. family had some family actually near Stevens Pass. So he had oh, cool. grown up skiing and, and with family out in Stevens Pass. He had actually also moved to Vail for uh, a winter and worked in a ski shop there. So he certainly convinced me to, to go out on the hill. And my very first actually snowboard lesson was at Park City Mountain. Oh, fun. How long did it take you to kind of get the hang of it to really start to like it? Oh, I liked it right away. That first year was was great. And in that travel job that I was still doing at the time, I had not started to work for the resort. I actually had a lot of flexibility. Mm-hmm. So I could come midweek and, and snowboard as much as I wanted. I remember absolutely the, the silver load pod in particular and having lunch at what was then the snow hut. I loved it from the very beginning. You moved there with one job and you ended up working for the resort. Was it that love of snowboarding that kind of lined up and you wanted to get in on that? Or was that just a coincidence? You were living in Park City. That's obviously a major employer. And you ended up working there. Yeah, it's a little bit of the latter. I loved guest service and I loved being part of guest experiences through that job that I did in the travel industry. And so when my husband and I decided to get married, traveling just was no longer going to be something that I was as interested in. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for a job that was in food and beverage at Park City Mountain. 
and it happened to be at a ski resort. So Mm -hmm. I was enjoying snowboarding, but I really wanted to do something that was really focused on the guest experience. And so my first job uh, at Park City Mountain was working in conference sales and services. Take us up through 2019 when you got the opportunity to work at Northstar. Yeah, so I had been then in food and beverage at Park City starting in 2007. I had mm-hmm. worked my way up into being the senior director of food and beverage, um, which included all of the restaurants and then the warehouse and the conference team across the entire resort. And I had at that time worked for Bill Rock and Bill had had his previous experience at North Star. And there was an opportunity at North Star as there was a promotion for Nadia Guerrero, mm-hmm. um, an opening there. And Bill and I had had a lot of great conversations around my leadership development and my interest in being a GM at a resort. And when that opportunity came up at North Star, I felt like it would just be a great fit and a great opportunity. And I was so excited that I was offered that role and moved there in 2019. And how, what did you think of Tahoe? I mean, growing up in the Midwest, then moving to Park City, which is obviously a spectacular place. And then Tahoe is just this really special high alpine environment. I mean, how did you like Tahoe? How did that impact you when you moved out there? Tahoe is just, it's stunning. That's the word that comes to mind to me mm-hmm. there. I mean, when you have the Sierras and the lake and the views that you get at the ski resort, it was just incredible. And Tahoe is a place where people like live their life outside. And mm-hmm. so I think for me, that was a really great fit and something that I was really excited about. And it's pretty different than the experience, certainly in Missouri, but even in Utah overall. So the Lake Tahoe region, I happened to live in Truckee when I was there. It has just a really great, what I would describe as a, a a casual, somewhat of a small town feel, just incredible community that was there. Now I was there during the pandemic. So kind of a mm. tough time to, I think, be in a new location, but I spent the as much time as we could as a family really exploring and mm-hmm. enjoying everything that Tahoe had to offer. You know, Utah obviously has really remarkable winters. Tahoe has really remarkable winters for different reasons and in, in the way that the snow comes in. Did, did anything surprise you? Is there any kind of culture shock or climate shock, I guess, from moving from light snow Utah to something different in Tahoe? Certainly. You know, what's great about being in the Tahoe region is I was part of the region that includes Kirkwood and includes Heavenly. So Mm -hmm. being part of that larger group, I think what you just described is what I know to be true is that there's nothing normal. There's not a normal season, I should say, when you're in Tahoe. It just doesn't exist. And so being able to lean on the leaders at not just North Star, but also my peers at Heavenly and Kirkwood mm-hmm. navigating that. It is anywhere from no snow to there was one season on my back porch, you know, a hundred inches of snow, I think in 72 hours. And it's that heavy Sarah cement. And so it's it's tough. It's physically hard. There are fires. There is just a, a lot of, of things that come into play, I think, from an environmental standpoint. There's a lot of resilience if you are leading a resort in California and in the Tahoe region that I think, I wouldn't say I wasn't prepared for, but it's undeniable when you're there. So you're there for a good little stretch, three and a half years, and then the opportunity comes back to go lead Park City. How did that chance come up and what was it like to return to the ski area where you'd spent so much time, but this time as the leader of the whole operation? I had the chance to return to Park City. It was the spring of 22, and my colleague, Mike Gore, had a chance to move to Switzerland to run the 
Undermont Sedoon Resort that we had just acquired the majority stake in. So poor Mike had to go to Switzerland. And so there was an opportunity to come back to Park City Mountain. And when that came to be an option for me, it was honestly, Stuart, as much as I loved Tahoe, an incredible mm-hmm. team at North Star, it was a really exciting and, and pretty easy yes to say to come back mm-hmm. and know that I would have the chance to to leave this incredible resort and come back to this community. So a lot of appreciation and excitement as I returned. So you come from North Star, and that's a bigger ski area than I think most people realize. It's one of the 10 largest ski areas in the United States, pretty sizable operation, over 3,000 acres. But you know nothing really compares to Park City in America. You're talking about more than twice that large, 40 lifts, as I mentioned in the intro, a really, really complicated place. Still, I have to imagine that between your familiarity with Park City and your time running North Star, you felt prepared. How did that time at North Star in particular set you up and put you in a good mindset and a good place to be able to manage Park City? I think my time at North Star really was where I was able to dive a little bit deeper into the mountain operations and spend a lot of time on the mountain there, both for work and for fun. And so I think that was really helpful, certainly as I returned. But when you're in a role at North Star, my title was vice president and GM. The community relationship is really, really important. It's, It's probably one of the things that I love most about the job. And it's really part of the job that until you're in the position, maybe you underappreciate. So I think my time at North Star helps prepare me from a community standpoint, from really working directly with all the stakeholders, both your team that's at the resort, but by approximation, different communities that are there at North Star, there's a community service district. It's complex between your proximity to the state line in Nevada. There were different municipalities that I worked and partnered there. And so a lot of those things, I think, really helped me be prepared to come back to Park City for some of those same reasons. And while I appreciate that the size is different, I think ultimately there are so many things that are similar when you are in a position of leading a resort and returning to Park City. The size is incredible. And I love that that is part of who we are at Park City Mountain. But I like to also focus on the small things. And the small things are how you interact with your staff. It is um, thinking about the guest experience every day and how we can just deliver an incredible experience for every person that wants to put on their skis or their snowboard and come to your resort. You know, on that point of the complexity of the resort, I I was talking to Dee Byrne, the COO of Palisades Tahoe, and they just connected those two sides, Alpine Meadows and the Palisades side by a gondola last year. She said that even though they've been one air quotes, resort for several years, they still run all the lift operations and grooming operations and patrol operations as separate entities just because there is that space. I'm curious how that dynamic plays out at Park City and obviously was combined with the Canyon side, was once a separate ski resort going on a decade ago now. But is that all run as one unified unit, Deidre? Or do you does it make more sense to split those up and you you have your Canyon side fellows and your Park City side crew? Yeah, I think the way that that we think about it here at Park City is that first and foremost, we are one mountain. And so I think culturally, that's really important for us Mm -hmm. from an employee standpoint, from a community standpoint, and also from a brand standpoint, that this is this is one mountain. And then I think when you think about it operationally and behind the scenes, just simply because of geography, yes, we have our snow-capped fleet sit on both sides of the mountain. 
Therefore, there are mechanics and there are teams that operate out of both of those base areas. But the leadership that is part of the lift operations team, it's one leadership team. And then we think about if you are a team lead, you might be based out of Canyons Village or you might be based out of Mountain Village. Mm-hmm. But that's not something that has to be stagnant. We move people around based on the needs of the business. And I think that's really important from a cultural standpoint. You know, going back in time, when you started at Park City, it was owned by Powder. And then Vail acquired the ski area in 2014. And I understand you were in a much different role at the time. But I'm wondering what it was like to live through that transition, Deidre. And how long did it take you to wrap your head around wait, that's not a different ski area anymore. This is all Park City. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting time to look back on for sure. I think it was a pretty quick transition, actually. Well, mm-hmm. Kind of interesting, Stuart. At the time of that acquisition and that transition, I actually was nine months pregnant. So wow. okay. I met um, Blaze Carrick mm-hmm. on September 11th, 14. And literally my first conversation with him is, Blaze, I'm having a baby on <laughs> September 19th. Okay. Um, so it was it was a very fast transition, if you can imagine, from that date and when I returned after having my daughter. And I think an interesting story around this that I think helped me during that transition of being part of Vail Resorts meant that what mattered most was relationships and connections. And mm-hmm. so that was Friday, September 11th, and I shared that news with Blaze. And that following Monday, Beth Howard, who now is the CEO of Vail Mountain, she actually was in my office on that Monday Mm. and she came out to meet me in person and just wanted to know about me, Mm. brought me a gift for my, for my baby that was coming. And we toured the mountain together. And it was really like, for me, an incredible moment of knowing that working for Vail Resorts was a company that really valued relationships. And Beth demonstrated that to me on that Monday. And so I think that helps us in general with the transition. And when I returned to maternity leave, you know, it was great to return. Anytime you're in a transition, there's lots of processes that change, systems that change. But, you know, by and large, we were a lot of the same people. And then shortly into that first season, we announced that we would integrate both canyons and Park City Mountain. And that was a really, really exciting time. So it took a little while to build that lift, and it's not quite the distance between Palisades and Alpine Meadows that I was describing a moment ago, but it's it's still a really dramatic lift. I mean, how surreal was that for you, Deidre, the first time you actually rode that gondola between Park City and Canyons and really just saw the scale of what Vale had done? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, of awe on that day when Quicksilver opened And interesting enough, I was still in my role as senior director of food and beverage. So in that summer, part of the $50 million was not only the connection of Quicksilver between both mountains, but a lot of food and beverage investments that we made. And so Snow Hut, which had been at the base of Silverload and then right there at Quicksilver, we actually tore that down to build a new restaurant. And I get to be part of that project and build miners camp. So I remember the day of both miners camp opening and Quicksilver at the same time. And so Bill and community members and our team all there to do the ribbon cutting at the restaurant and then turning around and opening up Quicksilver for the first time. So that was a pretty special day and one that I think I'll remember forever and remember that I got to be and my team got to be part of something that 
was so transformative. And I think very few people in this industry get to be able to say. So you've mentioned a few folks here, Beth Howard, who's been on this podcast, now the leader of Vail Mountain, and Nadia Guerrero, who's been on this podcast, leader of Beaver Creek, and his transition to a regional leadership role. And my last podcast, my last Vail podcast before this interview was with Amy Oran, the current general manager of North Star. So you are one of nine women, at least, holding top leadership positions at Vail Ski Area, sort of a COO, general manager level position, and one of three in the Rocky Mountain region. And you just described your experience with maternity leave, and it sounded like Vail was very welcoming and accommodating. How much do you value working for a company that actively cultivates women leaders in this way? Oh, it's, I value it probably one of the highest um, ways possible. I think this question is really interesting just from a timing standpoint, because as I'm on the Rocky Mountain region team, I mean, one of three leaders just a few months ago, we would have said it was one of five leaders of a resort, mm -hmm. but we've had both Nadia be promoted into a role where she's now over the Rocky Mountain region. Mm -hmm. And then Jody Churich, who just was at Breckenridge as a COO, she mm -hmm. is now overseeing the West region. So I think just a continuous example of our intention around development as a company and our intention around creating opportunities for everybody and women being a part of that. And, you know, one of the things I think about is, as I came into this industry and I described my story to you of probably at the time was fairly non-conventional. I didn't come up in the ski and snowboard world. I didn't experience mm -hmm. it personally growing up and I didn't necessarily have that mountain ops expertise. And I think oftentimes that can be something that can keep women reluctant to put their name in the hat in an industry like ours. If they don't feel like they are experts at the sport or experts at elements of the business. And I think with the intention around Vail Resorts to focus about leadership and to focus about the attributes that make great leaders and put great leaders in place and to create that atmosphere for women to see themselves as leaders to see themselves as potentially running a mountain, it's been something I've valued incredibly. And I couldn't be more proud to, to be in this role at Park City and to be a female leader in this industry. Does Vail then empower you as the resort leader to mimic some of those same practices locally? Absolutely. One of the values we have as a company is to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about that both through gender, but also from a much more diverse lens. And for us within resorts, what practices and things can we put into place to make sure that everyone feels welcome? And so as a company, we have women's and allies groups. We've really created an atmosphere for people to feel welcome and to find Bell Resorts as a place for everybody. So you find yourself as the head of one of really the most unique ski resorts in the United States. And Park City is cool for a couple reasons. One is that the ski area goes right down to the town. And the other, which is hard to appreciate until you're on the ground there, is you're kind of skiing through a mining museum. What can you tell us, Deidre, about all these huge structures and buildings and conveyor belts and all these crazy contraptions, this crazy industrial stuff we see along the trails? What are they? How long have they been there? And and are are they going to stick around? Yeah, I certainly think this is one of the things that makes Park City so unique is mm -hmm. our mining history. And it's mm -hmm. so incredible when people are out on the hill skiing and snowboarding and they see, like you said, these huge structures that have been preserved over time 
and creates, I think, a lot of curiosity for our guests around what they are. And so there's a couple of things on the mountain that you'll see. For example, you'll see the California Comstock Mine, which is in the Thames Canyon area that was built in 1900. You'll see the Thames Mine. You can see that from the Thames Chairlift that was completed in 1937. There's lots of different elements of the mining history that you can see when you ski across the mountain entirely. In fact, when you're at Bonanza and you look up, you'll actually see what is an old safe from when the the miners and their office building was placed right there. And you'll actually see a safe where some of the, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And we help maintain all this through a local nonprofit called the Friends of the Ski Mining Mountain History. Some of it is really big. Are there laws in place saying you can't really do anything with these other than look at them? You know, we have a great partnership with that organization. So the Friends of Ski Mountain Mining History. And really with our lease, our role is to really be responsible that we can facilitate any access that's needed for the preservation work. And then the city of Park City is our third partner. So us, Friends of Ski Mountain Mining History, and then the city of Park City itself, they're ultimately responsible for the decisions around what's best for those mining structures. And it's just been an incredible relationship. We know how important that preservation is, and it's a great part of our history. So if folks want to get a little more context, as you said, they stoke a lot of curiosity. Tell us about the Silver to Slopes tours, Deidre, and how folks can participate when they're skiing around. The Silver to Slopes tour is an awesome opportunity for our guests when they come to the resort to take a complimentary tour and they can ski with one of our guest service um, employees and they can go all around the mountain to go look at these structures, get real-time history from our great experts to talk about what these structures did when they were in operations, when they were built. And it's a great way to learn about the history with a guide. How long do those tours take? Um, Well, they start at 10 a.m. and they come out of the mountain village base area and they're about Mm -hmm. two hours. That's really cool. And I I mean, I imagine you can see a lot of it. Is most of that on the Park City side? It is. Most of this is is on the Park City side. And it's a great way to see that side of the mountain and get that history. And then you can obviously make that connection over from Quicksilver if you want to explore the Canyons Village side. So part of that mining legacy is actually the town itself. And Park City, as I mentioned, it's one of the few American ski areas with a town sitting right at the base. And Town Lift actually loads right on Main Street. You know, you've lived there for a long time. Deirdre both is just a person enjoying it and, and now as a person who has this role interacting with the city. Tell us about the relationship between the city and the ski area and what it's like to manage a resort that's so intimately intertwined with the community. Yeah, I think this connection that we have with the town by way of the Town Lift is one of the things that makes our mountain so unique. And it's something that we're very, very proud of. The fact that you can ski or snowboard, we call them the town runs. If you're up on the hill, you can cross a bridge that's pretty unique in and of itself. And you'll be right there at Park Avenue. And that's about a block from Main Street. And then on the other side of that, if you're already staying in Old Town or at historic downtown Park City, you want to start your day there, It's pretty incredible to be able to just walk down Main Street, start your day at a lift and head on up. So it's something that we're incredibly proud of. And like you said, I think this relationship with the city and the community, it's incredibly intertwined and something that is important for us to continue to always have a collaborative and positive relationship with our city. And I think it's a place where town lift creates this sense of, I think, a mutual pride Mm -hmm. that we have Park City Mountain and we have town lift 
And we have this incredible old town that all those things together create a pretty unique world-class experience that not a lot of other ski towns can claim. Another thing that not a lot of ski towns can claim is that Park City was an Olympic host in 2002, and it co-hosted those skiing events with Deer Valley and Snow Basin. Which events in particular did Park City host, and how do you memorialize those on the mountain? But being an official venue for those winter games, it's it's certainly a really special part of our legacy. So in 2002, we hosted the men's and the women's half pipe. We hosted the men's giant slalom, the parallel giant slalom, and the men's and women's slalom during the games. And one of the part of the legacy that we're so proud of is that during those games, we had three Americans, Ross Powers, Danny Cass, and Jarrett Thomas. They all swept the metal stand in the men's half pipe. So it's just an incredible part of the legacy. And so we've got different ways to memorialize it. We've got plaques across the mountain. We have a mountain in the base area at Mountain Village. We actually have one of the Olympic torches themselves Mm -hmm. um, from the games. And that's on display in Legacy Lodge. So the host city was actually Salt Lake City. And obviously there's a lot more to the Winter Olympics than skiing. And Salt Lake is actively bidding to host either the 2030 or 2034 Winter Olympics, and my understanding is the preference at the moment, at least, is for the latter. How involved is Park City, if at all, Deidre, in that planning and bid process for a return of the Winter Olympic Games to Utah? Yeah, it's exciting to think about the potential for those games to return back to Salt Lake City. And I think as someone that's in the ski industry and in the sports of skiing and riding, it's really exciting to think about the games coming back here. So We're certainly having great conversations with the organizing committee, and we're excited about the games to potentially return to Salt Lake. And and what is Park City's role there? Is it just a consulting role in in saying, yes, we could do this, we could do that, we could help in this way or that way? Or are you an active member of the committee that's making this bid? We are not active members of the committee. So we're having conversations with the committee as they're considering their different venue options and what different venues are possible and what different disciplines could happen. So not part of the official committee. But it sounds like Vail Resorts and Park City does support the notion of the Olympics coming back to Salt Lake. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the Salt Lake Games and the Winter Olympics coming back to Utah and Salt Lake would be very exciting for all of us. And maybe you haven't gotten this far yet, but do you have a sense, Deidre, if the Olympics were to return to Utah, would Park City have a desire to host the same events it did for 2002? I know the Olympics and and the different events have changed a little bit. So do you imagine it would be those same events you just described, or do you think it would be a different or or perhaps even an expanded set of events you could host? Well, I think that, you know, the Olympics are always evolving. And so with that, I think the slate of competitions, those can change over time too. So I couldn't say if we would have the exact same um, events that we've had in the past, but we're really having great conversations with the organizing committee on what potential venues there are and what those events could look like. All right, let's talk about the mountain here, Deidre. As part of Vail's epic lift upgrade in 2022, Park City was scheduled to get two new high-speed lifts. Vail was going to put a new six-pack in to replace the retired Eaglet Triple and the Eagle triple, which is a 1993 machine. And then over on silver load, they were going to retire the six pack there and put an eight pack there to replace that and and give folks coming over on the gondola a little more out of base capacity. Neither lift ended up being installed at Park City. What happened? I think I'll start by just saying how proud I am of the work that our entire team did in getting those permits ready. 
that time was actually when Mike Gore was here. So I wasn't here for the entire planning process, but what I can you know, share is that anytime that we're putting in a lift, we're very thoughtful. Um, I think we have great partnerships with the city along what's the analysis needed, what's the advice we might need from outside experts, how can we ensure that we can bring these projects to life? And that was certainly the case for both of those lifts. Worked for months with the city planning director. We worked on the stipulated conditions as part of the approval. And we really looked at staff feedback, we looked at community feedback, and we're really excited about those two lifts going in. And as we worked through that planning process and the permit process, the city planning director made the right decision to issue those permits and be able to approve both of those lifts going in. Mm -hmm. And then after that approval, what happened was there were four residents in Park City and they filed an appeal mm -hmm. of those permits the city had issued for the upgrades. And within that appeal, they charged that the permitting for our lifts had not been through the right process. And, you know, there was a lot of, I think, sentiment around traffic and crowding that also was part of that appeal. Unfortunately, and ultimately, the Planning Commission chose to uphold the appeal itself. And therefore, our permits for those two lifts were upheld. You know, my understanding with those lifts, Deidre, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it seemed as though the intent of most of those epic lift upgrades was not to bring more people in, but to move the people that were already at the resort around in a more efficient manner. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is, you know, we had people questioning what this would do for crowding. What I would say, and I think the intention around those lifts always were, were how do we think about areas where there are pinch points and base area capacity was absolutely an area that we looked at to say, how can we improve that experience and get more people up the hill quicker? And mm -hmm. so that's really the goal of the upgrades that we were requesting for Eagle. And then Silverload Lift is one of our most popular lifts for the skiers that are and the riders that are here. And so thinking about how could we have capacity there to move those skiers and riders around the hill more quickly. Ultimately, both of those lifts are focused on how do we get people skiing? And on the snow where they want to spend their time and how do we have them have the best experience possible? And we really felt like both of those lifts would achieve those goals. So the permits are rescinded, I believe, last June of 2022. Fortunately, you had not taken Eagle and Silverload off the mountain yet and demolished the old lifts, but the new lifts are sitting in the parking lot. Take us through what happened next. How long did you try to find a solution or a compromise with the folks who were pushing back against this lift? And when did you ultimately decide to do what you did with them? And, and what did you do with them? Yeah, I think that, you know, the timing for any projects that we try to do at our ski resorts is really important. You know, we've got a short summer window that oftentimes we need to get these very complex projects completed or they're multi-year projects. And otherwise, you know, you've got to open up for that winter. And so that certainly is a factor that came into play here as we determined where the best use was for Silverload and those Eagle lifts. And once that time came to be where we knew that we couldn't install them in Park City, we looked at the larger network that we have. I think it's one of the things that's really incredible about being part of Vail Resorts is that we have so many other resorts that we can look to to really invest in our guest experience. And that's ultimately what we wanted to do with these lifts. These lifts represented for us this incredible investment in our guest experience. 
And so we wanted to put that capital into our resorts wherever we could. And it was determined that Whistler would be a great opportunity for those lifts to find a new home at. So the lifts moved to Whistler. I mean, that must have been a very difficult decision to wave goodbye to those things as they drove up the highway. Did you engage with the disgruntled community members and try to work out a solution? And, and did it just become clear that that wasn't going to happen in any sort of reasonable time frame? Well, I think at this point and through that process, there is a process overall that does take time to figure out how we can or could potentially have those lifts installed. And that process itself, it was just clear that that was going to take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we came to the decision that those lifts needed to be installed someplace to really improve the guest experience. And that, that the time to get that done in Park City just wasn't going to be in our favor. And so to move those to Whistler really was the right thing for us to do as a company. How hard was that for you? Did, did you dwell on it or did you just say, you know what, there's nothing I can do to control it at this point. Have fun in BC. <laughs> well, I think, you know, for all of us, it was, you know, it's a pretty devastating decision, you know, to, to see this decision overturned. And after, like I said, all of those months of preparation and work and to see, you know, the very capable city planner permit those lifts so it certainly, you know, was hard. And the fact that we have a company of this size where we are able to look in times when we are facing these challenges and to make decisions like that, I think is incredible and, and the right decision to be made. And I'm happy for the Whistler team and for the Whistler guests and for all mm -hmm. the Epic Passholder guests to get to go experience these lifts in place. So I don't know how much those two lifts cost, but I know that they're very expensive and it was tens of millions, at least between the two of them, which is to say that Vail committed to a very big investment and the Epic lift upgrade was a, a really a system-wide network of 21 lifts that they wanted to upgrade in one year. As you get back to normal operating here, does Park City still hope to make those two upgrades specifically? And if so, what would it take to make them happen? Yeah, Park City Mountain, we are certainly, we remain committed to investing in the guest experience. And those planned upgrades, as you mentioned, were part of an incredible amount of lift infrastructure that we invested in as a company. And so we'd love to see those kind of investments be able to continue to happen here at Park City. We are still actively in a process with the city and through the legal process to see if there's a way for us to install those two lifts. You will be getting a new lift on the Canyon side next year. And this one is actually in partnership with the Canyons Village Management Association. And you're going to get a 10-passenger gondola for the 2025 to 26 season that will replace the current Sunrise double chair. Tell us about this new gondola, Deidre. Why are you building it? Where will it load and land? And how much will it change that morning experience of getting up the hill at Canyons? Yeah, we're excited about the potential for this project. It's like you said, it's in partnership with the Canyons Village master association. And it's really an example of us continuing to make investments to elevate and enhance the guest experience and access, and particularly this time out of Canyons Village. Mm -hmm. And so subject to approvals, this lift, so the Sunrise lift exists today near the Pendry Plaza area, and it takes you up, but then it actually drops you back down at the Red Pine Gondola. Mm -hmm. So this lift would go, this gondola, I should say, would go from that same base area, that same terminal near Pendry Plaza, but mm -hmm. now it would actually go up near the Red Pine area. 
Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about that being the end destination. And really what we're trying to accomplish here is to create an improved guest experience. That out-of-base capacity is so important for us. We really want to enhance that experience and ultimately get guests skiing and snowboarding faster, which means getting them on the snow faster. And we really feel like this particular upgrade will help do that. And then when you think about the base area out of Canyons Village, um, we have Red Pine Gondola, and then we have OBX or Orange Bubble Express. Mm-hmm. So really adding that third option out of the base will have every lift line be that much shorter and get everybody moving faster. And so we're really excited about how that will work out of Canyons Village. So Vale has actually put quite a bit of money into this particular part of the mountain over the last several years. In 2019, you solved, and again, I appreciate you were not running the resort at the time, but Park City solved a big logistical problem. They built the over and out lift from the base of Tombstone back to Canyons Village. And it's hard to appreciate the scale when you look at the maps or trying to squeeze so much into one page. But are there other places on the mountain, Deidre, where you would like to add another lift that would maybe solve some of these? Because it's a quirky place. It's a lot of little hillocks and in places to get around. So is, is there anywhere else you would like to have another lift? Well, I love the call out of over and out. In fact, that project had just gotten started when I left and went mm. to North Star. For me to return actually three years later and see over and out and see yeah. what an incredible difference that made was just, I think, a great example of what you just highlighted is our thoughtfulness around looking at pinch points and how do we address those and how do we put either new lifts in, or how do we improve the lift experience that we have in those points? Certainly, as we just talked about, Eagle is one of those areas that we would look at from a pinch point in the morning and getting more people out of the base area. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Silver Lobe, for those same reasons, is sort of what I would consider out of Mountain Village side, sort of the heart and soul when you're up on the mountain. And so it's popular because of those reasons, and at times can be one of the busiest lifts that we have. And then Sunrise is another example of us, I think, looking at where do we have opportunity and pinch points and where can we make investments, you know, overall. We've also made some investments in Red Pine Gondola. So we have replaced all the gondola cabins this past summer. And so we're excited about that and just getting that capacity and getting people up on the mountain faster with all new cabins. Could we ever see a lift to the top of Murdoch Peak? You know, I think that right now... Murdoch Peak is serviced by Super Condor. And that's a that's a pretty amazing, you know, it's a, a lift that we have there. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a short hike to the mm-hmm. top of Murdoch Peak. So we're we're pretty happy with the way that that area is lift served. Surveying the rest of Park City's lift fleet, more than 40 lifts, as I mentioned, and the vast majority actually have been built or upgraded in the past 30 years. So it's it's a really, I mean, for the size of the mountain especially, it's a really modern fleet. But there's always more work to do as you think about not new lifts, but replacements for existing lifts. What's your wish list here, Deidre, for upgrades? It keeps sounding like a broken record, Stuart. I can't <laughs> help but just keep saying my wish list is kind of out there right now. Right. With, uh, the Silverload Eagle and Sunrise. I mean, those are those are three pretty incredible projects for us to consider and, and make those investments overall. I would say another one that probably gets kicked around a bit from time to time is some considerations around the Dream Peak area and Dream Catcher lifts yeah. with potentially a high speed. How about Jupiter and Thanes? Those are older double chairs dating to the 1970s. Any thoughts for upgrades on either of those? 
Yeah. You know, when you think about those lifts of those era, I mean, they are workhorses, you know, yeah. those, that machinery is like a little, little simpler. It's a little less maintenance. And it's certainly some of those puts and takes when you're looking at modern lifts versus some of these lifts that are a little bit older, mm-hmm. actually for Jupiter, you know, I really feel like that lift is a great match for mm-hmm. like the terrain that, that it accesses and the type of skier and snowboarders that are drawn to that experience. There's something kind of special about the Jupiter um, chair and the experience that's over there. So Not sure that we have any plans on upgrading that lift anytime soon. How about town lift? This is a really, really long lift. It's more than a mile long, probably one of the longest fixed grip lifts in Vail's entire fleet. Is this a candidate for an upgrade or is it just popular in the morning and maybe doesn't get enough traffic outside of peak hours to warrant such an expensive upgrade? What are your thoughts on town lift and possibly upgrading that? Yeah, town lift, it's not part of our narrative for our, our master upgrade plan, which doesn't mean that that's something there isn't impossible. It just is a little bit harder for us to do. And I think what we just talked about is how important that lift is and its connection to Park City and to Old Town. And so we're always committed to that lift experience. It is a very popular lift in the morning. I think what you talked about is that with that length is it's a it's a fairly long ride. And so I think it's not something to look at from a capacity standpoint, but more of a of speed of how can we get those skiers and riders that are already making their way over to town lift um, up on the snow quicker. All right, let's talk about parking here, Deidre. Last season, Park City implemented a new partial paid parking plan for the 2022 to 23 ski season. How happy were you with the first season under that plan? And what tweaks, if any, do you have in mind for the coming ski season? Thrilled. That's the word I would use about the parking Mm -hmm. plan that we had for last season. You know, we set out to really make an impact on both the traffic coming in and out of our base area, but also the overall circulation. And we felt really confident as a team that we were going to be able to do that, but we surpassed our own expectations. And that's why I'm so thrilled with the outcome there. It was a plan that really was incredibly thoughtful for different options for our guests. So Mm -hmm. while we implemented a fee, we also had options that incentivized carpooling. Mm -hmm. And we didn't quite know what that was going to look like. And we had over 63% of our reservations for for carpool, which meant four plus people for us. Mm -hmm. Like a huge number, even with our third party we worked with, like a number that they had not really seen across other areas where they've had this kind of incentive. And then we made it free after one o'clock. We have an incredible bus system here in Park City that's free as well. So really having options for guests in addition to having Canyons Village, in addition to having offsite parking on our peak days, that ability for our guests to make a plan at the start of their, their day And then to be able to have that certainty when they showed up at the resort that they had a parking spot, Mm -hmm. it just created an incredible experience. And it expanded the arrival time in a way that not everyone was coming all. Frankly, it was not even trying to get the resort at eight o'clock for our nine o'clock lifts. It was starting to get, you know, well before eight o'clock. And instead, people knew what time they knew they had a reservation so they could make the decision to come in 10 o'clock in the morning. And so that really created a great experience at the base area. So Small tweaks for this season, but otherwise we really plan to roll out the same thing that we did this last winter. And we're excited to to have the season start off with the parking plan in place and to create another great experience as our guests come and arrive at the resort. Another thing that I would imagine 
helped with parking. Deidre, and this is the last question I have for you today, is a bunch of employees were able to live slopeside at Canyons thanks to a partnership that Park City had with Canyons Village Master Association, which put hundreds of employees within walking distance of the Cabriolet. Tell us about this specific development, Deidre, how much that changed life for some of your employees, and then just talk about housing more broadly and how you're approaching that challenge. Certainly, I think that, you know, housing in in most mountain communities is really a challenge across all these different communities and certainly here in in Park City as well. And so for us to be able to partner with Canyons Village Master Association, Summit County, the developer, Columbus Pacific Development, and really be part of creating something that was impactful around solving and helping to impact affordable housing for our workforce was incredible. And I think there's three things about Slopeside that I'm most proud of when I look at it is it has location. So it's Mm -hmm. at the base of a place where there's high density of workers. And then when you think about the size of Slopeside, so phase one includes 1,100 units. We master leased 441 of those units. And so be able to see that kind of density of housing in this location. And then the third element is design. It has such an incredible design, Stuart. It has technology that I think our workforce look for and expect these days. It has communal living elements. It has a workout facility. It has ski storage facility. All those things together, our employees have just raved about the experience. Mm -hmm. And I think for us to have employees housed on site, you can imagine in a year with 636 inches of snow, <laughs> um, getting to and from work was, was not easy for a lot of people. Yeah. And so for those employees that were able to be housed right at the base area and to walk out for their own experience and then for what that enabled from a business side um, has just been really transformational. All right, Deidre, good stuff. I know you got to run. I really appreciate the time. I know you have a ton going on, especially this time of year. Let's see if you can break that record again for the 2023 to 24 ski season. (laughs) Thanks, Stuart. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. That's Deidre Walsh, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Park City, Utah. Deidre, appreciate you very much. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for making time for that, especially at this busy time of year. And thank you all very much for listening. It has been a big Utah year for the storm, as I have also hosted the leaders of Snowbird, Deer Valley, and Snow Basin on the podcast. You can dig around the archives for those. I've also put out a ton of Vail Resorts podcasts in 2023. So those of you with an epic pass might want to go check out recent episodes with the leaders of North Star, Keystone, Mount Snow, Stevens Pass, Heavenly, Breckenridge, and Seven Springs. We've got Atatash coming up very soon as well. I've got you covered too, Icon Nation, as Schweitzer is already in the can. And I have episodes booked over the coming months with the leaders of Sunday River, Big Sky, and Camelback. 
tons of Icon episodes in the warehouse as well, including my episode over the summer with Altera Mountain Company CEO Jared Smith. Remember, the very best way to get new episodes the moment they are live is to pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the other podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers will receive podcasts seven full days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.